Well, we're obviously in Acts chapter 11 today, uh, halfway through from where we left off from two weeks ago. We weren't here last week because of Holiday World, but in Acts, you've you've got, as soon as the map comes up, I'll show you, but you've got Jerusalem, uh, which is which is near, here we go, oh, it's coming up, there we go, here's the map, here's the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Israel over here, which is Judea area, and the whole Middle East, you've got Italy here, so we just get a perspective of where you are, let's zoom in, and we'll show you where today's story takes place, we've just zoomed in, Jerusalem is right here, just west of the Dead Sea, you got the Sea of Galilee, that wasn't the map, was it? All right, so I'm going to forget that now. Uh, so you've got <clears throat> you've got the um, Sea of Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. That's not actually the map. That's an old map, but uh, we'll forget it. I can do it without it. I'm going to tell you there. Let's go. Leave it on that one. Where we are today is you're going to talk about uh, Syria. You see the big Syria right there. And you see Cyprus, which is an island. And then you see Antioch, which is a little uh, dot at the end of the trail there. All right? Those are the places that we're talking about today as we go into the story. But obviously, well, let's back up a second. You've got the church in Jerusalem, which is basically the Jews that have come to know Jesus as the Messiah, that's kind of split, because you have some that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and obviously you have some Jews that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're going to stick to the old traditions, they're going to stick to the circumcision, they're going to stick to the law and everything else. But the Jewish Christians, they're free from the law now, because Jesus set them free by dying on the cross. Then we went over across Israel to the Mediterranean Sea into the Caesarea area, and that's where Peter brought the message to Cornelius two weeks ago. And it's the first time the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Greeks, the Romans, everybody else got to experience the gospel message. God made a way for the Gentiles to hear the message as well as the Jews. It's not that that was the only time they obviously got to do that uh, throughout even the period of Jesus' ministry here on earth, because we know of some Gentiles that came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior before he even went to the cross. So now you've got this church, which is basically the Jews and the Hellenistic Greek Jews that are there, the southern part of Israel, but all of a sudden there is something that's taking place up in Antioch. A whole different region of Hellenistic Jews that are getting this not this message, and Gentiles, mainly Gentiles. Let me tell you about the city of Antioch. I'm going to read to you from a book by Frank Viola that was written in 2004, and you would think that it probably has something to do with today, but actually, he wrote this in 2004. Let's get up to speed before I read that. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, this is 41 A.D. This is 11 years after Jesus has died on the cross. The church is growing in Jerusalem. It's obviously gone over to Caesarea. It says in verse 19, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started 
because Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, Hellenistic Grecian Jews, all right? So now all of a sudden it's saying this, the word is spread and it's gone up to Antioch when Stephen got stoned, murdered, martyred, everybody left. They were scared. And a whole group of Jesus believers went to Antioch. Let me tell you about Antioch. This is what Frank Biola says and several of the commentaries. Antioch of Syria is located on the Orontes River and sits 300 miles north of Jerusalem. According to Jewish historian Josephus, which he wrote this around 100 AD, Antioch is the third largest city in Roman Empire, following Rome and Alexandria. The city is known as the Queen of the East, Antioch the Beautiful, and the third city of the empire. Antioch is the center of political, military, and commercial communication between Rome and the Persian frontier, the whole Middle East. It is a wealthy city and the only one that has street lights at the time. It is the main east-west street which is paved with polished stone and there are colonnades on both sides. Antioch's population is estimated between 300 and 500,000 people, half a million people living in this city. The Jewish population is large and vigorous, standing between 22,000 and 50,000. So all those that came up with the understanding from Jerusalem, now there's 22 to 50,000 living in this city. In the years to come, Syrian Antioch will become the cradle of Gentile Christianity. This is an important city. Now, on the other hand, Antioch of Syria is typical of all Greco-Roman cities of the first century. Listen to this. It is a pest hole of infectious disease. Sickness is highly visible on the streets. Swollen eyes, skin rashes, and lost limbs are readily seen in public. The city is populated with recent newcomers, so it is peopled by strangers. The city is filled with misery, danger, despair, fear, and hatred. The average family lives in filthy, crowded quarters. Sounds like a place you want to live, right? At least half the children die at birth or during infancy. Most children lose one parent before reaching maturity. There is intense ethnic antagonism which breeds hatred and fear. This problem is worsened by the constant influx of foreigners. All those Jews coming up from Jerusalem taking into their territory. It says crime is rampant and the streets are unsafe at night. What Christianity will bring to this city and all others in a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. The community of Jesus Christ, the church, will bring joy, hope, charity, a sense of family, and social solidarity to such cruel conditions. There are at least 16 Antiochs in the ancient world, but this one was the greatest of all the cities. Antioch was a wicked city, perhaps second only to Corinth. Do you hear what was just said right here? As corrupt as can be, this city of Antioch 
They're saying the only thing that's going to bring hope and joy to this is the church. There's hope for Antioch. It's one of the most corrupt cities in the world. Verse 20, it says this, But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. I turn to Acts 21.16 real quick and show you. It says, Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. So now we can actually put a name there with somebody. It's Manasson that was one of those disciples that came to Antioch. Verse 21, it says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The church in Antioch, now 22 to 50,000 people, the church in Antioch is quickly becoming a church full of law-free Gentiles. You get this, right? So now you've got this church in Jerusalem that's still kind of clinging to the law, but way up north you've got this church that's all after Jesus and they're totally law-free. We weren't ever given the law, that was given to the Jews. And we're totally free of that because of Christ Jesus. Verse 22, it says, News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas was originally from Cyprus, that little island, to travel as far as Antioch. So now, everything's happening up in Antioch. It's just like going, people are talking about it, and word reaches down in Jerusalem hey man, something big is happening up there. They are absolutely following Jesus. We need to send somebody up there. Well, who are we going to send? Well, all the apostles are kind of out doing their thing, talking about Jesus. Let's send Barnabas because he's from that area, sort of. And he's also been mentioned earlier in the book of Acts as the son of encouragement. Maybe we can get a word from Barnabas and he can be an encourager as long as they're doing the right thing. It says, verse 23, When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Barnabas had this natural relationship with the Greeks, with the Hellenists. As a native of Cyprus, he was most likely influenced by the Greeks more than any of the other apostles. On the other hand, he did not seem to have originally belonged to their group, but rather to have ties from the beginning. So he participated in this exemplary fashion in the church's practice of sharing. This is what the church did. They shared their things with each other. Barnabas was kind of like a, a bridge builder. How can I build the bridge between these law-free Gentiles in Antioch with the church that's coming out of the law in Jerusalem? He was the bridge builder on both sides of the issue. 
Then we jump to verse 25, and this is actually a time period later. Now we've gone a whole year just in between those two verses, and it's 42 A.D. It says, then he went to Tarsus. So Barnabas spent a whole year up there in Antioch. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now that little passage right there, let's break that down. Uh, Why not not send to Jerusalem and ask the deacon Nicholas who was from Antioch? Why would you go after Saul of Tarsus? We know that Nicholas was a deacon. It said that in Acts chapter 6, and he's from Antioch. I believe it's because Barnabas knew that Saul, Paul, was commissioned to minister to the Gentiles. I think somehow the Spirit told Barnabas, this is the man that you need. You've been here for a year. You've got 22,000 to 50,000 believers in this city and you're trying to be an encouragement to them all, you need some help, son. Well, who am I going to get? Well, I remember Saul, and Saul had a miraculous conversion experience. I'm wondering if I can go to Tarsus to find him. You remember that Barnabas, he befriended Saul back in Jerusalem. You go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. And there's no doubt the two of them talked about Saul's conversion during that time. So now in Antioch, Saul comes and he hangs out with Barabbas and he begins to minister to the people in Antioch. He stays at Simon of Cyrene, also called Simeon, his wife and his two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Simon's wife cares for Saul and acts like a mother to him. You know, Simon of Cyrene, you heard that name, right? Yeah, he's the guy that carried Jesus' cross. Yeah, so now Paul is staying with Simon of Cyrene in Antioch. Oh, how the Lord does his thing. It says this is the first time that the believers are designated as Christians. Christ's people in Antioch. They don't they haven't called themselves Christian, nor is this even the name given to them by the Jews. It's just a matter of that's all they talk about. It's not that they talk about Christ as being the Messiah, it's that they talk about Jesus Christ being the Lord of their lives. And that's all they talk about. It's kind of like CrossFitters. If you catch my drift. So now in Palestine, the Christians are known as Nazarenes. And there are two men in the Antioch church who will play a key role in this story. They're actually in the Antioch church, and one of them is this writer right here, this author, and it's Luke. And his brother, Titus. They're going to play a key part, and they are in this church in Antioch. They're seeing Paul and Barnabas minister to these people for like a year. What Barnabas did for Saul probably needs to be practiced in the church today. 
I need help. The gospel needs to be spread. There's too many people. Who can I get to come alongside of me and do the same thing that I'm doing? You, you don't know this because I, I don't talk about it a lot. But obviously we have the opportunity to, to help people in our community. And there have been several ministry starts, church starts, that we as a ministry have bought into. We've incurred just this, just this week, I had one man saying, God's called me to plant a church. All right, let us help you with that. I'll do these things for you. I'll do one, two, and three to help you with these things. And he was just like, what? I'm like, yeah, we do this quite often with people in our church. Look, th- this, is where I, this is where this whole thing started. I left the big institutional church. Lord, what am I supposed to do? And had to figure this thing out, search the internet, figure it all out. And now I feel that's part of our ministry is to help the same ones that have the same calling to start. And this is exactly what Barnabas has done with Paul. Imagine that Barnabas, he was the man and think about Paul's ministry. Mature believers need to enlist others and encourage them in new service for the Lord. I'm doing that. You're doing that. We're doing that together. Now watch this, verse 27. We jump to 43 A.D., another year later. It says, In those days some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Claudius was the Roman emperor from Emperor from 41 A.D. to 54 A.D. I'll tell you about him in just a second. But in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem now, down the south, we still had a king, King Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. He's the ruler down south. Watch verse 29. It says, Each of the disciples, according to his ability determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So now historians, ancient writers, they have already in our history book said there's been four major famines that happened during these years. Two in Rome, one in Greece, and one in Judea in 43 A.D. It's history. A prophet comes to Antioch and says, there's a famine that's coming, and people are going to suffer. Now, remember what happened back in 31 to the 38, when the early church started in Jerusalem? Acts chapter 2, they took all their stuff, They brought it together because they thought the Lord was immediately coming back and they began dividing it among themselves. That was during that early church time. Now it says, and it also says in Corinthians, how do they help and support? 
They give according to their ability. What they are able to do, we will provide for them. So here's this wealthy city of Antioch. The prophets come up from Jerusalem and say, hey, there's about to be a famine that's going to happen. They're looking at Jerusalem, who's now poverty-stricken and poor, and they say, hey, what if we just take up an offering an offering based upon our abilities, and we send it to them in Jerusalem and support them. Why in the world would they do that? Why in the world would they do that? Because they have been set free by the Messiah and the Lord, and the message came from Jerusalem. It traveled up there, and all of a sudden, they've got this great news. I... I'm part of God's family. I'm a child of God. I have the, I'm forgiven. I've been set free from the law. We're going to take care of those people in Jerusalem because it, it came from, look, <laughs> it's not any, I, from day one, I've never asked for a dime. We've never passed a bucket in here. We don't have a joy box in the back. Yet, because of the message that you hear, not me, not my speaking, or just the freedom that you're getting from this message, the same freedom that I got, people want to support it. Thank you for... And this is exactly what's happened in Antioch. They're like, we want to take care of those people in Jerusalem because the message came from Jerusalem. It says... <clears throat> In verse, and we, we now get to, to chapter 12. He says, oh yeah, he's, he says, we're going to take this and we're going to give it to the elders. In the beginning, the elders were the apostles, but now the church has gotten much bigger. We're 12, 13 years down the road. And now the definition of an elder has changed to more of a mature believer who has some spiritual insight and oversight to the ministry. So they take, Barnabas and Saul, take those funds that the church at Antioch has collected and they take it to the elders in Jerusalem. Then we get to chapter 12. We're doing good, we're doing good. It's now April 44 AD. We know it's 44 AD based upon history and matching this up with King Herod. But I know it's April because it's talking we're in the middle of Passover. So now, April 44 AD, chapter 12. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. Give me a minute, just like I shared with you about Antioch, let me share with you about King Herod, the history of King Herod. This evil man was the grandson of Herod the Great who ordered Bethlehem to kill children. Right? Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt to escape this decision. And the nephew, he's also the nephew of Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded. King Herod Agrippa comes from an evil line of rulers. His father, 
Aristobulus had been executed in 7 BC by his grandfather for fear that he might usurp his throne. He killed his own son because he thought he might take over his throne. And after his father's death, while still a child, Agrippa was sent to Rome with his mother where he was reared and educated along with the children of the Roman aristocracy. This childhood friendships eventually led to his ruling over a Jewish kingdom. Watch this. In 37 AD, the emperor Caligula of Rome gave him the title of king and made him ruler over the territories formerly ruled by his uncle Philip, lands in the Transjordan and the ten cities, the Decapolis, north of Galilee. Two years later, in 39 AD, Caligula extended Agrippa's rule by giving him Galilee, which is in Israel, and Perea, the territory of his uncle Antipas, who had been sent to exile. Finally, his former schoolmate Claudius became emperor in 41 AD. He was given rule of Judea and Samaria. So literally, King Herod Agrippa has been given the authority to rule over Israel by some evil, corrupt emperors. He became emperor in 41 AD, and he had been under Roman jurisdiction for 35 years. He was truly the king of the Jews, now ruling all over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Transjordan, and the Decapolis. Though king, Agrippa was hardly secure. Much of his good fortune was due to his friendship with Caligula, and Caligula had not been a popular emperor with the Romans. In fact, Agrippa could not count on always being in the good graces of Rome. It became all the more important for him to win the loyalty of his Jewish subjects in order to give him at least a firm footing at home. What can I do? Because obviously the people in Jerusalem, they don't like the emperor ruler of Rome. But what can I do to gain favor with them? Everything Josephus, the great historian, said about Agrippa would indicate that he made every attempt to please the Jews, particularly currying the favor of the influential Pharisees. His Jewishness, however, seems to have been largely a face he put on when he went home to Jerusalem and Judea. When away, he lived in a thoroughly Roman fashion. Why per persecution of the Christians was particularly pleasing to them at this time is not stated. Perhaps the acceptance of uncircumcised Gentiles as related in chapter 11 had something to do with his defavor, with his disfavor. All right, so now you've got King Herod. You know his background. You know his corruptness. You know kind of what he's doing. And, and watch what happens in verse 2. And he executed James. John's brother. Remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the disciples. James is the first of the twelve to be martyred the first disciple to go down. It says in verse 3, when he saw that 
it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of the unleavened bread. That's why we know it's April. He's killed James, cut his head off, became the first martyr. And now he's got Peter. Hmm. It's kind of interesting that Luke doesn't spend a lot of time on James. He's setting up the stage for this whole story of Peter. But what about, what about this? What about Let's go back to our gospel series. Remember when James and John were arguing about which one's greater? And their mother came to Jesus? Remember that? Their mother came to Jesus and said, please let my sons be at your right hand, be your servant, be close to you. And what was Jesus' reply to James and John and their mother? Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He asked those two in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. Their bold reply was, we're able. James was the first one killed, just like his Savior. He drank from the same cup of his Savior, his Lord. Verse 4 says, After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. Look, he killed James, King Herod did. Now he's going to get Peter. He can't do it during the Passover because it would ruin the Jewish Passover if there was a dead body there. So now he has to wait till the Passover's finished. The last night of the Passover. Then he can go in, be honorable to the Jews, and kill Peter. He's not going to risk his favor with the Jews by executing Peter during the time of the Passover. Verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. The Passover, seven days long. The church is in there. He's arrested Peter. Can't kill him. So for seven days, the church begins to pray. Verse 6, it says, When Herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night, bound with two chains was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. (laughs) You get this, right? You got guards, soldiers all around Peter, and he's literally chained up to a soldier. And the dude is sleeping peacefully. How in the world? There was no Advil PM. He's at peace with where he is, knowing that his fellow disciple, fellow apostle, had just been beheaded, and he's getting ready to do the same. How is it that he can sleep so soundly on this floor, next, to, chained up to these prisoners? Well, one, I believe that he had confidence in the church to know that they were praying for him day and night. Like, he knew that he was being lifted up. He felt it. But then, too, I believe that 
Peter had peace because of what Jesus had promised him. This is a, a wicked promise, but he remembered it. I take you back to John chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Peter knew, based upon what Jesus had told him in John, that he was going to be crucified. In fact, Peter said, crucifixion is not good enough for me. You might as well crucify me upside down, which is how Peter eventually died. But he knew that King Herod Agrippa had done what to James? Beheaded him. I believe that Peter knew he wasn't going to die by the hands of King Herod Agrippa at this time because Jesus prophesied, you're going to die on a cross, not by beheading. The dude's literally sleeping in jail, waiting to be murdered. He didn't know what God was going to deliver. He just trusted. Watch, we'll close out this story. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. <laughs> this is the movie. This is, this is one of the greatest stories to ever teach on a Sunday morning. An angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up and said, quick, get up. Really? Peter's like sawing logs, snoring, got prisoners attached to him light shines on and hits him in the side why do you hit him in the side because he's sleeping so peacefully he's like get up get up an angel appears to peter in the prison cells and tells him to get up quick get up and the chains fell off his wrist he's attached to these roman soldiers Inside the cell, there's Roman soldiers outside the cell who are changed every three hours so they stay alert. What in the world is going on? He looks down and he, he literally sees the chains fall off of his wrist. The chains fall off his wrist and the angel says, get dressed. The angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. This is the end of Passover week. <laughs> you remember what Passover week is, is for, right? It's to remember how God freed the Israelites from Egypt. You're to do this in remembrance of how I set you free. Now, here it is, the end over Passover week, and God is setting Peter free from the prison. Mm, coincidence? Absolutely not. Verse 9, it says, So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Was he still asleep? Was he walking in his sleep? Did, he, did this not really happen? What's going on here? It was clearly something that was a divine physical happening that came from the Lord. 
And he's literally going, what is going on here? Verse 10, after they passed the first and the second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city. We literally, we literally just walked by the Roman centurions. Peter, the guy who's supposed to be killed the next day. I'm just walking out of here. Nobody's saying anything. Nobody's doing anything. I'm out. It says they went outside and passed one street and suddenly the angel left them. The angel came with a bright light. How did they not see it? Well, God's got his hand on it. It says when Peter came to himself, now all of a sudden the angel's gone. And it's almost like he wakes up from this trance and he's looking there and he's like, I'm free. I'm out. Oh, that's how you're going to do it. I get it. Now what do I do? He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. They're going to be so disappointed. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and they were praying. Since it was the prayers of God's people that helped to set him free, why don't I go there and show them that their prayers really work? And two, I want to report the good news to him. Verse 13, it says, He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice. And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing on the outer gate. You get this, right? Peter's like, knock, knock, knock. Rhoda, the servant girl, who's afraid because James has already been beheaded. What if it's Roman soldiers coming to our house? But I'm going to the door, and she hears Peter's voice, and she says she even recognized it. She recognized it's Peter. And what does she do? It's kind of like you open the door. Yep, it's Peter, and you shut the door, and you run back in. What, what are you doing? You didn't let him in. He's like running from the Roman soldiers. And he goes back in. She goes back in, and she's like, hey, guess what? Peter's outside. <laughs> are you kidding me? It, this is good comedy right here. They're like, mm, no, that's not true. Are you kidding me? Seven days and nights you've been praying for God to release Peter. And he did it. And you don't believe it. What in the world are you praying for? Rhoda had been praying for a whole week. God showed her, look what I did. And she still didn't believe it. Watch how it ends up right here. Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting, it's true, I promise you he's out there. <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? Can you just see this conversation? Well, what's Peter doing? Hmm... Any day now? It's true, they said. It's his angel. It, it can't be Peter. 
we know he's getting ready to die. Peter, however, kept on knocking. Hello? Somebody opened the door, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Are you kidding? God answered our prayers? Holy cow. We've been praying for a long time, and he answered our prayers. Peter says, verse 17, motioning to them with his hands to be silent because all of a sudden, it's him, it's him, it's him. Hey, everybody, it's, the house is full and they're starting getting excited. He said, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. Where Peter went, he's, he's, he's literally, shh, 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 let me tell you about how it happened. Angel came in, da 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 and I'm here. Let me tell you about how good God is. And then it says, Peter left and went to another place. We don't even know where Peter went. It's almost like at this point, Peter just drops off in the book of Acts. He's mentioned one more time at 1 Corinthians, actually in Acts chapter 15, it says uh, uh, there's one reference to Peter. And then in 1 Corinthians 9.5, tells us that Peter traveled in ministry with his wife, Peter's wife, and 1 Corinthians 1.12 suggests that he visited Corinth. Other than that, Peter's done. This whole thing was about Jesus given Peter the keys to the church and he did that with Cornelius and now he's done. I'm sure he's not done done. We just don't hear much about him. But here's the question. Do you believe that God can answer prayers? When you pray, Do you pray just to talk to God or do you pray in faith? It, I believe it's easy to believe in God. I, it's a little bit harder to hear God. It's really hard to trust God. I catch myself trusting myself too many times. What could God do if we just had faith? Lord, give me more faith. Father, I pray today that this story, amazing story, great story, uh, it just becomes real to us. That we sit here and take the world history and your word and we've meshed the two together and it makes sense to me. I pray that it makes sense to my friends here. I pray that they see how important the church is. How important the church is to pray together, to respond together, to live together, to just to, just to be together. So today, uh, we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks for just loving us, taking care of us, providing for us, healing us, just loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.